Hello everyone, I'm here today with Charlene Towns, a holistic counsellor and barefoot therapist. Charlene's one of our columnists in the Hornsby Karingai Post. Welcome Charlene. Welcome, thank you. So today we, we're going to have a chat about, I guess, your career and what it is you do and what you offer to the community and um, your insights into your industry. So we can kick off anywhere you like if you have a special special area of focus. But for me, I guess I would ask, why would one person or a couple come and see you? I guess uh, my desire in the way that I work is to uh, bring people back to themselves, to their bodies, to their history um, and how that manifests in the now and that's where we're working. So we're working in the present but we're working in all that we bring to that moment from the past and trying to unpack just the bits that are necessary to ground people in their life, help them un. Uh, get through issues that are coming up for them Mm. and particularly with couples how that then relates interrelationally between the two of them. Yeah because I guess wow every couple has their own issues. Uh, Some themes would be the same but some individual traits and characteristics can cause havoc within a relationship. So what would be some of those typical behaviours that that can cause um, upset and I mean, it could range, I guess, from arguing over little things to not talking about big things that should be talked about. Yeah, and I guess what you're talking about there across the board is communication, right? Yeah. So uh, the the common theme is how do we talk about the hard stuff and how do we behave when we're personally triggered and we all have our historical stuff that uh, triggers us in the moment and we tend to take that out on the nearest and dearest. Mm. And it's often not about them and it's often not about the issues at hand. Um, and one of the things I say to people often is we get into these conversations and it's about, you know, it's not about what takeaway you're having tonight or what country you're going to live in. It's actually about the dance. It's about the way that you interact in those conversations. Oh, and when we understand the dynamics of that, particularly with the context of both people's histories, we really start to make change that, that I notice uh, makes really deep, significant change in the dynamic between the couple. Do you think many couples are actually, you know, I guess on a day-in, day-out basis or even just each week diving deeper or do you think it's just day-to-day, get the kids to school, get the mortgage paid, get those activities ticked off, you know, have dinner out on Friday night? Do you think people actually do talk about the difficult stuff or do they let it Do they let it build up or what's, what's the mix? Because um, you don't always have time to dive into some of these you know, heart-aching type of conversations. Yeah, and look, generally, um, generally, there's a uh, there is a common theme where we we often see women want to have those lovely in-depth conversations, and men generally don't want to do that, and that's obviously a huge general generalization. Yeah. Um, but that difference between you know how much I need to talk to understand and how much I just want to get on with things mm. and how do we find the line where both of those are answered to some degree where there's a sense of good enough for both parties that that communication is meaningful and rich enough but not over the top for mm. the people involved. And you can imagine when there's difficult issues, that's where those differences really play out in a dance that's often really unhelpful. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I've seen like just in, in over the years in different acquaintances and friendships that one person can be doing all the talking and the other person 
looks like they may be listening, but actually they may just be letting it wash all over them. And then yeah. they're sort of like, oh, well, they just needed to get that off their chest. We don't actually need to do anything. She'll be right now or he'll be right now because he's had a big verbal, you know, chuck. But um, I guess if they do decide to go to a counsellor, then they've got someone hosting a session where you, you, you would find both parties have to speak and both parties have to listen. Yeah, and I think that neutral place for couples is uh, probably key to what helps them start to really unravel, maybe just step back enough to see it clearer. Mm. Um, And, you know, when we're in our relationship with our partner, all any of us ultimately want and need is to be heard and Mm. feel validated. We don't need to win, generally. Most Mm. people don't need to win an argument. They just want to feel... You heard me, I hear that you understand, maybe you don't agree, but I feel better already just having been really truly listened to. And in, you know, the busy uh, the busy life, like as you said, of getting through the motions and just getting tick the boxes to get through life, mm. that can make that really difficult. You can, yeah, because yeah. you get into this monotonous rut of, of just doing what you have to do each yeah. week. <laughs> yeah. And often, you know, one of the other common things is um, – the things that attract us to someone are often the things that are not like us. They are exciting to us because they're different. Um, it brings mystery and novelty. And then they're the very things that five, ten years down the track drive us absolutely crazy. It's funny you say that. I've seen that in a few um, movies and television movies where the things that attract you are the, th- yeah. the things that later drive you away. Yeah. And yeah. one of the ways I try and bring that into the space with my couples is to ask them about their origin story. How did you meet? What did you love about each other? Mm. How do you notice that now? Because often that's either the irritant or it's so far forgotten that it doesn't, uh, it's not holding that, that sense of bonding together. Yeah. And that origin story is really an important one. Even in friendships, it's an important one. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it's a lovely one to bring back into the work, especially when they're starting out and arriving in my room with, you know, what we would think of as a problem story. We're not getting along. This is our last-ditch effort kind of thing. Or we've split up and we want to know how to separate kindly. Oh. Um, they've kind of gotten to that point. That That's becoming more common too. Really? Yeah. And have do you, do you see that when they've come to you separated and they want to split up nicely, do you ever see them? Get back together? Yeah. Or they do you? Oh. Yeah, I have had a couple um, in the last 12 months um, come back together and it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful to see them kind of come back to that origin stuff and recognise their own stuff in it that so, they can take account for and, yeah. and the difference that makes. And it, make, it, it reframes things enough to say, actually, what am I giving up here? And is it really worth that? It's a lot yeah. of work to start again too. It is. It absolutely is, especially when there's kids involved. Oh, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's painful for most couples. Okay, and Charlene, when people come to you, obviously some of their behaviours with their partner are rooted in some of their, you know, to do with their upbringing. So for people people that are really – I've met a lot of people that are really gentle, um, really – just lovely, generous, gentle, good-natured people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and sort of kind of seen them trampled all over. Yeah. Do you do you think that um, if if a couple came to you and and one party was a bit oblivious, is there a way of awakening people to be more confident and have more self care? It's, it's a tough one. 
Yeah, there is. And a look at every couple's dynamic or the dance, mm. as I call it, is is unique. Um, we or bo- we individually both bring our stuff into that. Mm. Um, if I noticed, and I've had couples like this, you know, I have even the first couple of sessions, one really talks for the other and every time I address one, the other answers for them. That's and what I mean, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that dynamic's really important for us as therapists to... Um, bring into the space because that person it speaks to the potential that in their dynamic that person feels powerless not heard Um, if if I can enable that person to have a voice in the process of the therapy together that can start to uncover some things that are going on that are really helpful Mm. for both parties Mm. most people if they're in therapy want it to work so for the person that's doing all the talking over it can be just as liberating for them to be given permission to not have to speak for the other person. More importantly, that the most empowering thing they can do for the person they love is let them step into that, even if they're terrified, even if it's not their normal way to be. And get that balance of talking to the relationship a little bit more even. Mm. And that's empowering for both people. That's true. And it can change that dynamic of, you know, the one that always does the talking and and the other that's quiet and gentle and, as you said, can feel put on and sort of dragged along. Mm. Yeah. yeah, wow. Interesting. So in your holistic counselling, um, you talk about a sense of feeling at ease and a lightness of being, mm. providing people with um, connection in a, in a uniquely supportive relationship and hope through understanding the why Foster meaningful, lasting change by empowering the you in the how. Um, (laughs) So I guess the focus, as you've said, is the very unique relationship that is yourself and would you comment on or say something about the relationship that you have with yourself? And not you personally, I mean one has with oneself. Absolutely. And and just to go back a step in that one, um, I encourage everyone that – that rings to inquire about my work, um, to look look around, yep. make sure. The most important thing when you're looking for a therapist is that you feel a connection, that you feel right. safe, right. that it feels comfortable to open up. Mm-hmm. You will do your best, deepest, most uh, transformational work if that's your feeling. So I always say to people at the end of my first session, how does this feel for you? because that's critical. It's mm. not offensive to me at all if they don't mm. come back because that feeling wasn't there. It's interesting though because it's a, it's a feeling and it's an emotion and it's a touchy thing and not, not every, I meet a lot of people, not everyone's willing to talk about any types of feelings. Yeah. So it depends on the couple and the individual, of course, but I, I've come across a lot of people when you ask them how they feel, they sort of look at you, well, what do you want me to feel? Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. What's the right answer? Yeah. So, and I think um, if you're working on a relationship, obviously it's personal, so you would hope that they would want to talk about their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when somebody can't, it's a defensive place. It's, it? it's kept them safe to not. So the last thing I'm going to do is barge in there and sort of, you know, get them talking about feelings and um, and hop yeah. to it. So that's right, a very gentle right. unravelling of the defences that make connecting to that difficult. One of the things I most love about the body approach that I work from is that we often don't have the words but we almost always when we tune in feel it in the body mm. and that can be a channel to developing uh, that emotional feeling 
uh, breadth and depth of yourself that maybe you're not used to. Mm. And that's very empowering. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Wow. Okay. So some of the um, blogs that you've had are very interesting and there's a lot on your website that you can read that I think would be would resonate with a lot of readers. One of them is about perfectionism and it's something that um, has the word perfect in it. So you <laughs> think this is a good thing. Isn't it good to be perfect and be a perfectionist? But in fact, um, looking at what you've written in your blog, what it says, I'm not good enough. I need to do more, need to be more, achieve more. I think that there's a lot of people silently walking around with this. Yeah. And I, I heard um, someone speaking recently and it was an interesting conversation because she was saying to me that she asked her friend what her internal conversation was with herself when she was running and she was a marathon runner. And basically her internal conversation was move your butt, move your fat <laughs> butt. And my friend was sort of like, wow, I didn't expect you to say that. I thought you'd be saying, come on, you can do it. Yeah. But she was saying, move your fat butt, come on, you've got to do this. And, you know, how kind we are to ourselves, I guess, is the conversation, you know, that's where I'm headed with the court with this conversation. But perfectionism is such a big topic, I know. Yeah. Do you get, do you see, do you call out or can you gently hint to people that that could be a wedge in their relationship? Definitely, and I think, you know, when I see that come up, it's mostly in my individual work. Ah. Um, perfectionism really taps into that not good enough stuff that we all carry around inside us. Mm. And uh, perfectionism is really just this overwhelming need to attempt to control the environment and everything in it because in that sense of control, that perception of control, is this feeling of safety. Mm. So when it's not perfect, we're kind of often driven to, uh, you know, keep it perfect to, to feel safe. But actually mm. if we can gently go towards the what's not safe about that, is it that I'm not good enough, is it something different for often it's a different thing for each person. Mm. But going to that kind of wounded part that is trying to scramble to control everything, that's often where the healing is. And then right. we have a very different dialogue with the perfectionistic self and we can start to kind of, you know, hijack its, its thinking a little bit more where, you know, the perfectionist thoughts, we can meet that with, um, you know, it's not good enough for who. It's good enough for me and it's good enough for what I've got today. Yeah. And we can really let that go a little bit. And the more we do that, the more we practice that, the more comfortable we sit in things not quite perfect in this mm. sense of perception, mm. the anxiety reduces and the need for perfect can just, it's, it's like a chain mm. around you. Mm. Um, mm. And then you start, you know, one of the beautiful ways that we can plug into that is, is gratitude. Oh, gratitude, yeah. That's really bringing gratitude and compassion, mm. for, particularly for self. Yeah. You know, why am I needing this to be perfect? Yeah. 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 It is interesting, isn't it? Um, I think they're really hot topics right now. Yeah. Gratitude, compassion. Definitely. Um, and I'm meeting a lot of, <laughs> I don't know what it is, I seem to be meeting a lot of recovering perfectionists, <laughs> if I can call them that. So I'm not sure what that's about, but <laughs> maybe this COVID lockdown that we've had and um, all of that um, change in our social behaviour has had some kind of impact. But I think definitely perfectionism it affects more people than, than we know. And the other big item that um, or the big stress that I see is anxiety. Yeah. 
um, playing out in more and more people's lives. And more and more people, I think, are starting to talk about it. Yeah. Whereas before they were trying to hide it and yeah. trying and feeling the, the shame, but also not understanding why and um, why they have anxiety and and or even knowing they have anxiety and thinking that it's normal to feel that way. And every perhaps everyone feels this way when mm. whatever it may be, if you're feeling anxious about leaving the house or if you're feeling anxious about walking into a room with a lot of people or um, just anxious that just day-to-day activities. Um, I'm just seeing more and more anxious people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it's just the circles I move in or No, no, if and you some. can imagine last year, you know, when COVID hit, it, it, it just amped up to crazy levels yeah. across the board. People that weren't normally anxious were anxious. People that were anxious were, you know, losing the plot completely, just completely heightened anxiety. Part of the the antidote to anxiety really is to find a way to be more comfortable in ambiguity in the unknown. And, of course, that's an enormous step for people where anxiety is part of day-to-day life and has been for sometimes decades. Yeah. Um, That sense of impermanence that we take from Buddhism, I love that as as Mm. a way of being in anxiety with a different relationship. Um, one of the analogies I give young people particularly because they they kind of get the visual a bit more um, easily than the explanation with anxiety is thinking about it like a bus mm. and when you have anxiety it's like you have been thrown to the back of the bus, anxiety's in the driver's seat and it's just taking you on a crazy ride right. and you have an absolute sense of no control mm. and that's what's really alarming. The alarm system in the body goes off, the alarm system in the mind goes off. And when you start to get a handle on anxiety, the kind of long-term goal for me is anxiety is at the bus stop, you're driving the bus, and anxiety has a role in life. It keeps us safe when we're in potential danger. So when we're in genuine situations where anxiety is a friend, we can choose to pick it up and bring it on the bus. But we're not living under its complete chaotic control of our lives. Yeah, And that's kind of the analogy, the, the image that I give people to... Think about when you can invite it in because it's a friend. Um, that's a very different relationship mm. to it. Yeah. And do you think it's possible to have had some trauma, be fine for a while, even even years, and then have anxiety creep in much later when you least expected it and you thought you were fine? Absolutely. Because I, I see, I've yeah. seen that. Yeah. In, in and I see friends. that every day. Do you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And mm. I guess the, the, the thing I love about the body approach is we don't always have the memories in the conscious mind but the body definitely holds them for us if we don't deal with it it holds oh, really? them so we get aches and pains we can't explain we get long-term kind of held held uh tensions in our bodies that we can't quite get rid of mm. often when we go there in therapy with the body and get in touch with that um we uncover the the trauma as you called it mm. the, the stuff that's not quite released from the system it might be from the conscious memories, but it's not from the system, and that mm. can be deeply transformative. Mm. Or people that have turned to a different vice just to get them through a period, mm-hmm. um, and then you know perhaps have thought, well, I better give that the kick because you know it's time to move on, and then yeah. have discovered all of a sudden they're anxious, yeah. and it's sort of. And I, I can think of many friends in the past who who have um, become very uh, yeah anxious or, or turned to a vice at the time. And I've thought, oh, I don't know why they're doing that. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. But yeah. obviously there's something in their past that, that, that has tr- has caused some trauma somewhere yeah. along the line. Yeah. yeah. 
And there, are, I mean, look, we've got a lot of great um, support networks in our community for anyone, you know, feeling um, anxious or, you know, dealing with depression. Yeah. That's one thing, you know, during COVID, the government threw money at, um, True. at a lot of really important mental health services like Lifeline and mm. Beyond Blue and those, the real crisis um, supports in the community. They're well, Lifeline's so taken a huge increase yeah. in calls. Yeah. Um, it was in one of our last sort of three editions of the paper that Lifeline has taken so many, oh, the numbers are phenomenal, in the hornsby Kuringai area yeah. for phone calls. I think they quadrupled or something yeah. and um, and they don't, haven't had their volunteers coming forward. So mm. I guess anyone maybe that has stopped working through COVID yep. um, that may have been a counsellor, that might be something to think about. Yeah, and in terms of volunteers, I mean, they have wonderful training. Do really they? wonderful training. Yeah. Yeah. So that's another option too, even if you're not uh, from the mental health field in the first place. I'll train you up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I should have a chat with them, I think. Yeah. <laughs> For anyone that's interested and get them on, on a podcast, talk about how they can um, how they can help. They're such an essential service in the country. It's wonderful yeah. the work so they do. Do you see all age groups? You, do, you, do you work with teens as well as I adults as well as the elderly? Yeah, I do. Generally, uh, though, my clients are adults and certainly couples. Yeah. Um, but what often happens, as you can imagine, is I work with an adult or a couple and they've got, you know, one of their kids that's, oh. that's struggling and I'm a familiar and trusted relationship by the point where that's um, that's coming into the conversation. Mm. So it is lovely for them to bring, particularly if I work with, with children, you know, 13, 14-year-olds, they're coming in with mum or dad. Oh, really? um, that's that's a nice way to enter mm. the space for the child too because mm. that's really, you know, it's confronting as a kid. Come and talk to someone. I know. know. It's the last thing but most think, of them want to do. But look, I think though when we were growing up, I mean... Oh. I was never offered. Actually, I was never offered counsel no. growing up but no. in life. Um, and I re- even remember my English teacher standing up and saying, "In America, they all have a shrink." <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to see my shrink. But um, in Australia, it's uh, it's become normal now to see a counsellor, at least. But definitely, you know, decades ago, no way. Yeah. So I think actually, if you can get teens talking about their emotions at that age, um, set them up better on it, set them up for life with their partners and their relationships so that they know it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to Mm. come and have a chat with someone that can um, perhaps ask some questions. And also empowering them in the idea of impermanence. Yeah. You know, it might feel really awful right now, but not, these things don't last. Yeah. And helping them truly experience that um, with the support of relationship of a therapist can be mm. fabulous. Because they can, you know, you, we, we've all been there when we're young. It feels mm. like it will never change. But yes. of course, we can reflect as adults. Yes. We know very well it does. So helping children really experience that, I think, mm. is a really helpful That's part true. of counselling. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Okay. Another blog you have, Charlene, is about self-care for sensitive people. And I'll just read the beginning of this. Are you easily overstimulated? Do you feel positive and negative emotions intensely? Are you a sponge for other people's anger, stress, sadness and fear? You might be an empath and you are not alone. (laughs) So what's behind all of that? I can remember as young as sort of six and seven having this, this sort of awareness that I was sensitive in a way others weren't in my family, that in even in my sort of 
wider family, that there was something different. Um, and now there's been some beautiful books written about empaths um, and highly sensitive people. And when these came across my, uh, my desk and I read them, it gave me the language, I guess, for a lot of the clients that I'm finding uh, uh, coming into my office. And they kind of struggle with that same kind of sensitivity. So with regards to being an empath yeah. and this heightened sensitivity to other people's needs, I would say that I've seen a lot of people who give too much of themselves yeah. in, a, in an attempt to help that other person. They almost lose themselves. And this can happen in a relationship yeah. or with a friendship or, or, or even someone you might not even really be that close to where you, you sort of want to run in and be a hero, not for any notoriety, but genuinely to help that person because you feel that they're just so, you know, wrongly done by or they're so in need of assistance and then you can lose yourself. There's a lot going on there in that example that oh, okay. I can't Sorry. possibly cover. Too much what, of an example. <laughs> <laughs> Where I do want to go with that in context of, of the article and empaths is empaths feel sometimes before they even have words for it, the emotions of others. One thing that empaths can suffer from is feeling the emotions that are not said by others. So the people that can't speak to their emotions, empaths often you know, absorb that like a sponge. Mm -hmm. And one of the really key parts of working as an empath out in the world and keep, is keeping yourself safe. So learning how to have emotional boundaries, learning how to be a giving, feeling, beautiful, sensitive human being, but keeping yourself protected in that. And part of that, as you can imagine, is learning boundaries, uh, when boundaries. to set them, how to set yeah. them, how to bear it when the, you're setting a boundary and the response from the other person is not a good one holding into that this is for me and protective for me and staying in that space that's really the the learning for empaths and there's a lot of that in my work yeah. yeah and that must be hard when they come back and they're trying to practice a new behavior and it's not landing the way that you know maybe the the counseling or the therapy had said you know this is what you should do but then the other party is disrespecting or disregarding or consciously or otherwise so yeah that must be tough it is and you know boundaries uh, again it's another enormous topic as you mm. can imagine well, yes but it's, <laughs> boundaries really are key to almost every every presentation mm. you know we're when we're learning about ourselves we're learning how to uh, understand ourselves keep ourselves safe but speak to our needs in relationships and these are all boundary issues mm. yeah. yeah they are yeah it's so interesting um well, there's just so much ground, um, Charlene, that we could <laughs> go through, we to could. be honest. <laughs> how do people find you and how do um, – you've got a website. What's that? Uh, barefoottherapist.com.au. Okay. And, and uh, I'm on Instagram, Barefoot Therapist Sydney. Okay. Uh, Facebook as well. And um, mostly people find me through referrals from friends and people that have seen me. All right. Uh, I work nationally, so I do oh. Zoom. Probably 70% of my work wow. at the moment is Zoom. Wow. Uh, couples and individuals, so that's yeah. fabulous. Do you speak and, at any um, events or anything like that or not I haven't so really had time, but no. it is something I'd love to do. In the yeah, future, definitely. perhaps. And I love my writing. So Oh, that's true. You know, and you're very, I must compliment you, you're a very good writer. Thank you. So I, you should I've, give that some more time. I've always, always loved it. And my mother, my late mother, was a beautiful writer. So And the Mother's a, Day piece that you wrote for the Hornsby Kering I mm. post was very popular. Yeah. And I know I shared it personally as well as through 
my business networks and there was an enormous amount of um, – you, you touched a lot of people, I yeah. guess is what I'd say. Yeah. So I think it was Mother's Day for Mothers Without Mothers. Um, I think that There's was a it. lot of us. <laughs> yeah, and we yeah, don't think of that. Are, yeah, there are, and it's a hard one at Mother's Day. And, um, and I think it's nice to have someone through their own lived experience write something to other people out there who are going through that, mm. that grief. Yeah. And I think you revisit that. You must revisit that that type of grief every year in, in, in I don't know what capacity. I have my mum. <laughs> but um, I thought that it landed very well with our readership, mm. that particular piece. That's so wonderful. Probably keep that, yeah. reuse that. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely you have it a It was flair. very easy to write. It comes from the heart. Was it? Yeah. it comes from, you know, my mother died many, many years ago, decades ago now. Mm. And um, it's it's an interesting experience to have a mother without a mother because you're you, we're all learning whether our mother's here or not and mm. you add another layer, you know, there's a whole other layer of missing uh, not having that, as I wrote in the article, one of the biggest things is that safe place to land as a daughter, yeah. and that never changes. We're always a daughter, even yeah. when mum, our mothers die and or are, are separated from us. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very well written because it was written not just as if your mother had actually died, but if you were estranged or yeah, or, or not, just not rel- not in your life. Yeah, and there's so much of that too. Sadly, there is a lot of yeah. there is a lot of um, you know severed relationships yeah. and. Um, and some of them can't can't move forward, so it's nice to to read something that is actually real. You know, it's thank a real you. situation. So thank you for that, and thank you for your time today, Charlie. My pleasure.